Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2018 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is America's role in the world. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. This podcast features a panel discussion entitled America in the World, How Should America Handle China and the Middle East? It features Hoover Senior Fellow Russell Berman, Hoover's William Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia, Michael Osland, and Hoover's Robert and Marion Oster Distinguished Military Fellow, Gary Ruffhead. The moderator is Hoover Senior Fellow Norman Neymark. The panel was recorded on October 22nd, 2018. Uh, nice to see you all. Um, you can all hear all right? Yeah? Okay. Uh, our session today uh, is about uh, America in the world. This is an extremely important topic, obviously, given the rapidly uh, changing nature of the international system. And it's changing really on both sides of the America in the world uh, equation. I mean, America itself is changing. And uh, this change goes back even before uh, the Trump administration um, and will continue afterwards, how America sees its role in the world. And then we have the world. And it's changing as well. And it's changing very rapidly, sometimes in relationship to American policy, but sometimes in relationship to various parts of the world's own conception of what the international system should be about. So we're really lucky today to have three uh, Hoover experts uh, on this subject uh, speaking to us. Uh, we'll ask them to speak for about 10 minutes each. I'll then pose a couple of questions to each of them, which they'll then answer, and hopefully we'll have a very kind of robust uh, discussion session uh, at the uh, end. Uh, first of all, let me introduce uh, uh, Michael Misha Ausland, right to my uh, left, is the William Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. He specializes in Asian geopolitical and security issues and U.S. foreign policy strategy. Michael's latest book was written in 2017 and is titled The End of the Asian Century, War, Stagnation, and Risks to the World's Most Dynamic Region. He was an associate professor of history at Yale, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a visiting professor at the University of Tokyo. To the left of him is Russell Berman, the Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford University, Senior Fellow at Hoover, and Co-Chair of Hoover's Working Group on Islamism and International Order. Uh, Russell's a specialist on Germany with a particular concern for U.S.-European relations in terms of politics, culture, and security. He also studies the challenges of the Middle East and the region's relations to Europe and the U.S. He's the author of numerous articles and prize-winning books and I should say, as a longtime colleague of Russell uh, at Stanford, he's also primarily responsible for our humanities uh, education, the advances in our humanities education uh, uh, policies here at Stanford. He's done gargantuan work on behalf of the humanities at Stanford. Uh, and to the left of him is Admiral Gary Ruffhead, is the Robert and Marion Oster Distinguished Military Fellow at the Hoover Institution where he chairs the Arctic Security Working Group and serves on the Energy Policy Task Force. He's a retired Navy, uh, a U.S. Navy Admiral. He served as the 29th Chief of Naval Operations 
and is one of only two officers in the Navy's history to have commanded both the Atlantic and the Pacific fleets. He also served as deputy commander of the U.S. Pacific Command during the massive relief, massive relief effort following the 2004 tsunami in Southeast Asia, and as commandant of the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, during his retirement, Gary serves on numerous uh, boards of directors and also is a trustee of Johns Hopkins University. So without any further ado, Misha. Norman, thank you. Uh, thank you, Tom, for having me here, and, and thanks to all of you for taking time to, to come out. Um, we're going to talk about the world on the panel, but I'm, I'm going to focus on just half for 10 minutes. I figure that, that'll be enough uh, to talk about um, What's rapidly becoming, I think, over the, the long arc, if we can call it that, of the Trump administration, probably their central focus. You know, we, have, we have a crisis in Saudi Arabia now. We're going to have other crises that pop up. But if you look, I think, at the long trajectory of where the Trump administration is going, Asia has become the primary focus. And you see that in the documents that they've put out. You see that in um, the attention that the president is putting on, on different areas. Uh, and you see it in, then in the reaction that the region has to what the Trump administration is doing. So since we only got a, a few minutes here, I don't have time to do a, you know, a full laydown of all of this, I thought it'd be more just almost cocktail talk, which is to talk about the good, the bad, and what I hope is not going to be the ugly in Asia over the next couple of years. And really a bunch of things for you to keep in mind as you uh, work through the, the daily news and some of the analyses. What are, what are some of the bigger trends? So let me just go through those really quickly. Uh, and when I talk about Asia, and some of you have heard me talk about this before, uh, usually I talk about the whole Indo-Pacific region, which stretches in that great arc from India all the way up to Japan. But this talk today, I'm really going to focus on the good, the bad, and the ugly, mostly in Eastern Asia. Uh, so let's start with the good. What is the good in Asia today? Um, this might be a little controversial. And I'll tell you, it, it, it's actually really controversial and contentious in Washington, D.C. But I think the good in the Asia policy of Trump today is what I would call the new China realism. And this is, this is a debate, and this debate is going to go on. Um, even when President Trump was coming into office, there were lots of questions. Was he going to kowtow to China? Was he going to be too soft because of business concerns? Or was he going to get us into a war with Asia? Uh, and by that, of course, we really meant North Korea or China. Well, we're about, what, 18 months in or so, and I think you're, you're beginning to see a pattern now that the administration has decided that for too long, China has abused the system. China has taken advantage of our openness, taken advantage of our willingness to engage, uh, quite frankly, taken advantage, uh, taken advantage of some of our greediness. Uh, and this goes on for decades. This isn't happening just in the Trump years or the Obama years or the Bush years. This goes back to the beginning. Uh, and they've basically decided that, that we've hit, in essence, a red line, that we cannot continue on this path. Uh, and so you see, these are just some of the headlines from just the past couple of, of weeks, uh, in fact, some, of, some from just the past couple of days, of the ways in which the administration is, uh, I would say, operationalizing this, uh, this new China realism. Um, 
one of the big things you hear about is the Belt and Road. Some of you've heard about that, One Belt, One Road, the new Silk Road. Just last week, the president announced a new initiative, a new finance development corporation to try to counter that. Uh, that has actually been paralleled by what the EU and other nations are doing. Everyone is worried about the unfair, uh, basically, trade arrangements and aid arrangements that China is trying to make through the Belt and Road. Um, you heard uh, last night Alex Stamos talked about the extradition of that Chinese intelligence officer. The administration is among the first to really try to punish in some way or another the Chinese for their relentless spying on us and their relentless stealing of industrial uh, and commercial secrets and defense secrets as well. Um, finally and belatedly, though I think it, it is to be welcomed, the president has begun to move forward on uh, bilateral trade agreements since he took us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, he's talking with Japan now. He wants to talk with Vietnam. This, I think, is to be encouraged. Uh, a lot of this was summed up. That's that picture of uh, Vice President Pence giving a talk the other week at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. And this is really encapsulated, I think, the thinking of the administration. But uh, most of it, I would say, is due to H.R. McMaster and his team. Uh, when you read the national security strategy, this has really been a fundamental reorientation of our China policy. Now, there are dangers. Uh, there is always unanticipated consequences. Uh, there can be some blowback. I'm going to come back to that in a minute or so. Uh, but I think it has been a long overdue correction in U.S.-China policy. And so for the most part, I would say that's the good. What's the bad? Let's talk about the bad. Keep your eyes on the U.S.-South Korea alliance going forward. Um, we're in a real bad spot with South Korea right now. It's driven in part by the president's desire to try to create this agreement with Kim Jong-un. I think uh, anyone who's dealt with North Korea has to be very, very skeptical of that and hope that they remain prudent and, and that they don't rush into something that could really undercut us. But the real danger right now is what's happening in Seoul in South Korea. President Moon Jae-in of South Korea, who is a, uh, a far-left president, has been part of the, the far left in Korea his entire career, is rushing pell-mell to undermine U.S. sanctions, uh, to basically normalize relations with, uh, with Kim Jong-un, to uh, demobilize part of the um, uh, defenses along the demilitarized zone. Uh, Washington is getting increasingly frustrated in dealing with Moon even as they move forward on, on the president's desire to continue meeting with Kim Jong-un. The question of this alliance being something more than just an alliance in name is actually going to be talked about uh, in the coming months. There is real, real worry that we are getting to almost an, a, an irrevocable rupture between Seoul and Washington right now. So keep your eyes on what happens in the alliance. And then, if you know anything about North Korea and its history, what might Kim Jong-un do to take advantage of it? And I would also say, what might Beijing do? Because the one thing that Beijing wants is to drive a wedge between Washington and Seoul, isolate Washington in the region, isolate Japan in the region, and increase its influence throughout South Korea. And Moon Jae-in is essentially making that happen. So watch the South Korea alliance. That's, that's the bad. Let me spend the rest of my time talking about the ugly. And I hope this doesn't become really ugly, but, but I'm worried. You're going to see a lot of things that are headlines that are taken, some from this morning, some from just the past couple of days. It, it um, feeds back in a little bit to what I talked about in the way that the administration is taking a hard line with China. But I think we have to, to be very aware of the way in which a more assertive U.S. policy, 
even if it is overdue and even if it is justified, can have, as I mentioned, unanticipated consequences in Asia. So let's talk about a little bit of the ugly. First one is US-China. Are we on a collision course? If you look at that top headline, that's taken from today, this morning, from CNN. Uh, the US sailing warships through the Taiwan Strait. Again, this is something that's long overdue. We should have been doing it regularly. China should not feel that the Taiwan Straits or the South China Sea are its waters, and we have been too hesitant to assert our rights, even though we, we talk about it, but to prove that we believe our own words when we say we're gonna sail and fly wherever and we're gonna encourage our allies to do it and our partners to do it so that China does not mistake itself that these are its waters. But China talks about red lines in terms of what the US is doing uh, in Asia. And you can see what Chinese President Xi told Secretary Mattis on one of their recent meetings. We're not gonna give up an inch of territory, and that picture, I'm sure you're all familiar with the picture, that was um, last month, September 30th. That was what I think in diplomatic parlance is called an unsafe maneuver on the high seas. Uh, Gary can talk to us more about, about that, but that is a Chinese ship in the front coming within meters of one of our guided missile destroyers, forcing it to take evasive action. Now, we've seen this before. This isn't the first time, this isn't new. The question is, is Beijing more willing to lash out because of its frustration with the Trump administration, because it feels pressured? Uh, and accidents like this can, in lack of trust, with lack of a working relationship, spiral into, uh, into some type of conflict. Second flashpoint, really keep your eyes on Taiwan over the coming weeks. Taiwan's been quiet for about a decade. They had a government there that was committed to cross-strait relations. China took a lot of advantage on that to integrate their two economies, but the new government, which is a more independence-leaning government, uh, has begun to push back against it. That's a picture from last weekend. Tens of thousands of people gathering in Taipei to protest China's bullying, as they call it, to protest China's buying off of diplomatic partners, of trying to keep Taiwan out of international institutions. Um, the Taiwanese are talking more about their role as a democracy, very important, uh, their role in standing up to China, and their role with the United States. But this is the red line for China. Make no mistake. Some of us think there's no way China would go to war, but we uh, are very close to something that is a misunderstanding between the two, in which case we could get into a real problem. Um, I have to finish up. I just want to show you two more slides real quickly. Uh, China's bad neighbor policy towards us. We heard this last night. Increase of hacking once again against the United States. And if you didn't know, China is one of the major suppliers of fentanyl, the, the, the crucial drug in the opioid crisis to the United States. It's from the DEA, how it comes into this country. Despite promises to stop hacking and stop the opioids, it continues to both attack us through cyber, uh, cyber activities and to try to flood the United States uh, with fentanyl. And then finally, one last thing. I think you're gonna hear a lot about this coming up. You've heard a lot about cyber. This is the new race between the two, it's AI. China is investing heavily in AI. We're beginning to get worried about it. The Pentagon is committing billions of dollars to it. We don't, I would argue, really understand what this means in terms of international relations or our military competition, but you can be sure that Washington will get panicked about falling behind and then in some ways exacerbate the problem because we haven't had a long AI policy just as we don't have a cyber policy. So those are the things that could turn really ugly. Try to keep your eyes on those as we go forward. Uh, it's areas where we really need to negotiate and work closely with our allies, but also try to figure out how to work with the Chinese on some of these.
So I'll stop there. Thank you. Russell. Uh, thank you, Norman, uh, for the introduction. I'm happy to be here as well. Mish has given you a, a survey of some of the challenges we face in, in, uh, in East Asia. I'm going to flip to the other end of the Eurasian continent and talk a bit about, uh, about Europe. Uh, I say that, but I want to qualify it in the sense that China is no doubt our competitor going forward into, into this century, but our long-standing relations with Europe are an important asset that the United States has and that the United States should cultivate uh, in this larger global competition. That said, as important as our history is with Europe, as, the, as our relations are in terms of defense and economy and values with Western Europe, we shouldn't be blind to tensions that exist within this uh, relationship and that we should be working to correct. Let me talk about five dimensions to this, to this uh, relationship with Europe. The first has to do with defense matters, uh, and NATO is, of course, the, the major issue there. The reports of NATO's demise, I think, are premature. Uh, just this week, there's a major naval exercise uh, around Norway, a uh, joint exercise with NATO countries, uh, the largest since the end of the Cold War. So it's clear that our defense collaboration can continue. Nonetheless, that remains um, overshadowed by the long-standing free rider allegation, the sense that the Europeans aren't anting up enough, that they're not covering enough for the costs of uh, their own defense. And at a certain point, the bill has come due, and the administration is asking, uh, why should we be footing the bill if the Europeans aren't prepared to, to, uh, to, to defend themselves? Uh, there was the controversy about Article 5 at the, early in the Trump administration, where the president was uh, suggested a lack of commitment to coming to the defense of the Europeans, and he, he, he walked that back uh, subsequently. To my mind, the question actually should be posed in the, the, the other way. Are the Europeans prepared to defend Europe? That is to say, let me put a fine point on this, if we had a situation in, um, in, uh, in the Baltics or in the Balkans, uh, like we had in Ukraine, is the Bundestag in Berlin prepared to send German troops to fight the Russians? And I think there are big reasons to doubt whether Germans would fight to defend Warsaw. That's a real Article 5 question that I think is more important than the uh, one that, uh, was, that uh, circulated around the President's remarks uh, earlier on. In the meantime, it's nonetheless clear that the Europeans are prepared at least to move in the direction of a greater defensive posture as they become increasingly concerned with Russia. Second point in the transatlantic relationship that I want to mention, uh, I won't go into this in depth, but uh, it is a significant piece of this, and that is energy. Uh, the European uh, energy structure is complicated, very strong environmentalist groups, the Germans are uh, moving toward exiting nuclear altogether. Uh, one reason why they have extremely high energy costs, uh, increasing dependence on Russia through the Nord Stream project. But in the news just today, the uh, you know, German chancellor seems to have approved an agreement to support import of American liquid nat natural gas to, to Germany. That's not gonna have an effect significantly uh, for, for quite some time, but it is a win for the Trump administration and it is a, an indication that the United States can, can be competitive in Europe for its energy resources and therefore um, 
at least provide an alternative to the dependency on, uh, on Russia. Now that brings me to my, my third aspect of this uh, transatlantic relation that is crucial to um, uh, the, the challenges that we're going to face in the coming years, and that, that is Russia. Uh, at some point, a historian, maybe Norman, will write uh, an account of U.S.-Russian relations since the end of the Cold War. I think things could have gone differently. I think uh, things could have um, gone in a way that might have pulled post-communist Russia more into the West than is the case. I think things might have gone differently during the Clinton administration, but that's all water under the bridge. You know, we're stuck now with a Russia that is a nuclear power, um, with a declining population, with a very weak economy, but with a sense of itself as an important power in the world. That's a values issue. Uh, with an aspiration, at least in parts of its leadership, to uh, reachieve the kind of influence that the Soviet Union had at, it, had it, at its height. I don't believe that Russia represents an existential threat to the United States, but Russia is going to main, remain a significant competitor in a number of theaters, Europe and of course the Middle East. This is a problem that any administration is going to have to face. The Obama administration faced it uh, well by pretty much opening up the Middle East to, to Russia's return. Uh, at the same time, it was an increasing antagonism between Russia and between Moscow and, and Washington. I think the big, the big problem, the big, the big calculus here is, uh, as I said before, our challenge in this coming century is China. It's not Russia. Therefore, we ought to have a strategy that involves weaning Russia away from China. All the tendencies in Washington, however, seem to be toward pushing Russia into China's arms. This is not an easy problem to solve because Russia is really engaged in lots of nasty business. Lots of nasty business on a micro level, assassinations, uh, and on a macro level, the Ukraine, Crimea. We can't countenance that. But Darshan, we have to figure out a way to, to break the, this, this, con this Eurasian convergence of Moscow and, and, and Beijing, they don't have the same interests at heart. They both have aspirations to, be, to, to dominate the, the continent. Uh, China has much more resources than, than Russia. We ought to be able to figure out a way to, to, to break that, that emerging alliance. That's why Europe's important. Right? Europe is the, the, the chip between us and, and Russia. Uh, and that brings me to my, my fourth point, uh, the European Union, the EU, and its fragility. Uh, you know, whether we like it or not, it sure seems that the EU is falling apart. Uh, maybe we should be, be, be blunt about this. The tensions within the EU have been mounting, and this also predates the Trump administration, it can't be attributed to the Trump administration. Remember the Greek crisis and the tensions between Germany and Greece. They're about to reemerge now between uh, the center of the EU and, and Italy, the Italian bank crisis. Uh, in addition to that, we have a crisis between what, or tension between, an increasingly bitter tension between what uh, Donald Rumsfeld talked about as old Europe and new Europe. That is the, the, the moralism, perhaps, of, uh, of, of Brussels and Strasbourg looking at the, uh, the central East European countries. Uh, and of course, the, we also have Brexit. So 
Each of these is a different phenomenon, but pull it all together and the EU does not look like a stable unit anymore. That's why the question of multilateralism versus, versus bilateralism makes a lot of sense to ask with regard to, with regard to Europe. And the big bilateral question, now watch for this in the coming months, is going to be with the United Kingdom. Uh, the, the Brexit is, the, the Europeans are not being flexible on Brexit. Um, this is not an endorsement of every policy decision that's come out of London either, but the reality is that that arrangement is heading toward a brick wall. Uh, and a solution is not in sight. One solution that could be in sight once the UK is out of the EU would be a trade agreement with the United States. It can't negotiate that as long as it's in the, uh, in the EU, but watch for this to happen. The United States just renegotiated with Mexico and Canada. It's not too hard to imagine the UK being part of that, that party. Uh, and finally, with regard to Europe, um, and in maybe more conceptual, theoretical uh, level, there's the question of the, uh, the new national populisms and what they mean. Uh, the national populisms, the right-wing populisms in France and Hungary, but let's not forget the left-wing populisms as well, uh, Syriza in Greece or Podemos in, in, um, uh, in Spain or Bernie Sanders in Vermont, but that's another question. Uh, the, um, uh, th there's, a, there's, there's an antagonism toward the old political class uh, there's, there's some analogy toward the Trump, with the Trump phenomenon in the United States, but I think there, there are significant differences, indeed significant differences among these, among these different cases. Uh, um, Austrian national populism has led to a, a um, conservative populist uh, uh, government. In Italy, you have a populist left uh, government. Uh, the, the populists in Austria are critical of the populists in Italy on the budget question that's about to emerge. So it's by no means a unified phenomenon. What a lot of these populisms share, however, in addition toward the antagonism toward the elite class and toward international, et cetera, et cetera, what a lot of them share uh, is a, a slide toward an anti-American position. They're variously friendly toward Russia, they're suspicious, hostile, um, uh, derogatory toward the United States. Poland, I think, is the one exception because Poland, for its history, just doesn't have a Russia card to play. Uh, but in Hungary and in Austria and certainly in France, anti-Americanism is a, is, a, um, is a constant. And that's going to be a challenge to US-Europe policy as we move forward into the next decade. Thank you. Great. Well, uh, Misha and I didn't have an opportunity to coordinate our talks, so you're going to get a little bit of uh, uh, the same coverage, maybe a, a different perspective. But um, I've been talking about the challenges that we face in Asia. I went back in my Hoover notes and in a retreat in 2012, I spoke about the same thing. So at least I'm consistent. And, and for those of you who have been here before, I hope you'll, you'll put up with me. Um, the, I, I see things <laughs> happening very differently. In, um, in Beijing, and I've had the opportunity to, to track them closely and follow them closely, I would say that in Beijing, they're reading Mahan, Mackinder, 
and Mishis. Mahan is a great naval strategist. You would expect me to tout his theories. Um, but in times of peace, he advocated that great powers tend to be sea powers, and that in peacetime, you build up your navy, you build up your maritime forces, you secure uh, positions along critical choke points on the world's oceans, and, and that is how you can ensure trade and security uh, going forward. Mackinder um, was a geographer, also a strategist, who had a theory that um, in, in Eurasia, that if you control the eastern heartland of Europe, and then you are able to control the world island, meaning Eurasia, then, then that is where power will reside. Uh, Mishis was a, uh, is the Latinized name of a Chinese philosopher considered only second to uh, Confucius, uh, but he figures in a little bit later in my talk. And my point is that uh, China has had a very strategic view. They have thought deeply about how they want to position, position themselves globally. Um, and I would say, and I think Misha alluded to it a little bit, our speaker last night, is that we haven't gotten these strategic vectors and the consistency going forward. I will say that this administration in issuing the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, in my view, has it right. The question will be, does the rest of the government, does the nation follow in these strategic thrusts that they put forward? Um, so kind of a little bit of Mahan and a little bit of Mackinder. Um, this is the Belt and Road that Misha mentioned. Uh, the Maritime Silk Road is the blue that goes through the ocean areas, and the red is the Silk Road Economic Belt. You can add to the top of that now the Polar Silk Road, which uh, China is uh, uh, focusing on that as well as a region of resources and also commerce. Uh, clearly, they want the energy out of the high north uh, from Russia, and China has also overlaid onto that a digital Silk Road, more to follow uh, later. So great theories, a great map, but I will tell you that uh, in addition to some of the ports that are listed there, month before last, the Chinese were given control to operate a port at the southern end of the Suez Canal, they already open, uh, operate the port at the northern end of the Suez Canal. So as you look through the Indian Ocean region going into Europe, the idea of having presence in choke points has been realized by China. Um, theory. Uh, this was taken with my iPhone from my hotel. The red circle is a port uh, facility that you can see that is operated by China uh, to the uh, north of that is a major landfill that will expand that port to be operated by China. The blue circle is that nation's main naval base, and, a, and that little thing jutting out at the top is the submarine pens of that nation. Um, tourism question, where am I? I'm in Israel. Um, that is a Chinese port that looks directly onto their main naval base. The Silk Road uh, economic belt and maritime Silk Road is real. And oh, by the way, the vice president, several business leaders, to include Jack Ma, 
is going to be in Israel next week to engage their tech industry. So I think this is something that, again, is more than just lines on a map. Um, you, you have to forgive a Navy guy for talking about ships. But as we uh, look to the future and we talk about the challenges, whether they're in Europe or whether they're in Asia, these are the navies that are at play. And if you look at the Royal Navy, UK, and the number of ships that they have, chances are they're not going to come to help us in Asia or the Indian Ocean. France is quite lean. Um, but look at what China has done. Uh, their Navy is becoming quite formidable. And beyond that, it has the potential to operate at distance uh, from uh, from the Chinese mainland. If you move into Asia, where I wanted to do a comparison of the size of the US fleet to the size of uh, the PLA Navy's Far Seas fleet, the ones that can go a distance, and then you look at what we currently have in Asia, uh, it's pretty lean. So we can talk about the strategies and what we'll do and how various countries will respond, the capacity is quite limited. Uh, and oh, by the way, this is not today. This is two years from now. And the other thing I would add, when you get into the area of the South China Sea, what I haven't put on this chart is that China has 119 other ships that can shoot at you. So the idea of uh, you know, being able to engage in that part of the world is, is pretty challenging. And I would submit that we as a country have not had serious conversations about this. We have not had serious conversations about what would it mean if something happened in Taiwan? Is the American public prepared for the type of engagement, for the type of crisis that we could face there? Uh, we are just not having those strategic conversations. Um, the other thing that comes into play, and a little bit of a follow-on to last, last night's discussion, is technology and innovation. This is the world that we're moving into. And the question is, how are we doing? How is China doing? And I thought what I would uh, put up here are some phrases that are used in China. Indigenous innovation. They started out by taking a lot of our intellectual property. They still are. They got pretty good at copying, and now they are legitimately innovating on their own. The other thing that they have is the concept of civil military integration. Xi Jinping talks about this almost all the time when he's talking about the technology that China needs to move forward. Uh, the artificial intelligence investment that's being made in China by 2030. Cyber, literally thousands of people that China has thrown at this problem a new cyber industrial park that will be ready in 2020 that they're investing $15 billion in. Space, you read or hear a lot about the Space Force and the administration is dead on in, in highlighting the importance of space. Uh, not just for uh, security purposes, but also for uh, commercial uh, uh, endeavors as well. And, and we think about satellites, but what is it that we're really after? Positioning, navigation, and timing. Your GPS, the ability for you to drive around, is really going to be driven by uh, the space systems that we have. 
uh, how they are able to monitor the areas that they have an interest in will be key. Uh, when I retired about six years ago, I could move an aircraft carrier from San Diego into the East China Sea or South China Sea, and by doing it the right way, the Chinese would not even know where it was. That intelligence, surveillance, and uh, reconnaissance no longer is it that easy to do anymore. And then, of course, space and weapons. I was talking to some folks at lunch. Someone asked, um, you know, what would war be like without space today? And the best answer that I've heard is that it would be like World War II. No precision, inadequate communications, and nowhere near the speed with which we have to operate. Um, computing. Uh, here's Mischius again. The Chinese gave that name to a satellite. It's a joint project between China and Austria, which for the first time they were able to send quantum particles the longest distance ever. Um, that's what China has done. They realized the value of quantum computing and the ability to have uh, penetration-proof or unbreakable communications uh, going forward. Hypersonics, these are weapons that fly beyond five times the speed of sound. China is, has a very, very aggressive program there. These are also the weapons of the future because they come at you in ways that our current systems are designed to, you know, they're designed for another type of threat, so we have to get our head into that. Drones, uh, China is already moving out very quickly in unmanned vehicles, and they are not constrained by some of the conventions that we are party to. Xi Jinping uh, made a speech back in uh, 2017, and his comment is that we should cultivate a large number of world-class scientists and technologists in strategically important fields, scientific and technological leaders and young scientists and engineers, as well as high-performing innovation teams. I think this is one of our great security challenges. Science and education training. Look at the different numbers of people who are trained in those fields by the various countries. The number of American students in those disciplines, which also means that if you take uh, the balance of those numbers, those are individuals that I cannot bring into the military or into the security apparatus and give security clearances to. So we are educating fewer and fewer young people in the fields that are going to be extraordinarily important going forward. Consider the computer science, which is the basis for cyber and AI. 21% of the students uh, are US. Uh, look at the difference in Chinese students between the academic year 2004 and 2014. And in my view, and I leave it to those from uh, the colleges and universities, that's not going to change because look how much money is being pumped into the university system. Um, our challenge is how do we get our young people ready for that? And I would submit, unless we can fix the elementary and the middle school system, we're not going to have the feeders that will produce the type of talent that we need in the future. And so a picture is worth a thousand words. The top line are science and engineering students in China, 
uh, the next line down is us. So on that happy note, I conclude my remarks. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks to all three uh, of our panelists for really terrific and uh, uh, challenging uh, presentations. I'm going to just ask uh, each one a, a brief question, ask them to respond briefly, and then we'll, we'll then open it up uh, for a general uh, uh, discussion. Uh, Misha, I thought your, uh, your discussion of Korea was especially interesting in light of you know, all that's gone on in terms of U.S. relations with North Korea. And then, of course, the historical relations uh, with South Korea. I mean, it, let me ask you about U.S. policy, basically, about Korea, and how U.S. policy should um, proceed, in other words, to um, follow its own objectives versus the objectives that either the South Koreans, or in this case, perhaps the North Koreans, are most interested in. I mean, are we being shunted out of the Korean Peninsula? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually the, the real problem, is that up until now, you've had the U.S. and the South Koreans together. The objectives were the same. Uh, and so you could go for everything from military contingency planning uh, to diplomatic initiatives, um, all, all where we were, we were together. Uh, and if you, you wind up on, on diverging courses, uh, then it is, um, it, it's not just a, a problem because you may not get to where you, you want to go. You may be working across purposes, and we have, we have over the decades, um, really intertwined ourselves with the South Koreans. I mean, our two militaries are probably the two uh, most intertwined militaries for combat capabilities uh, in terms of training and exercises, which the administration has stopped now uh, in order to give peace a chance. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the command structures uh, that have evolved over the past decades, uh, the, all of the diplomatic initiatives from the six-party talks to everything that we've done has all been on the assumption that we, we understood the problem the same way and that we wanted to get to the same, the same end. And I, I don't think you can say that uh, is the case today. The reason that, that Korea, of course, is, is such a a concern, and I agree um, not only with everything that, that Gary said, you know, Gary said different perspectives, everything that you said, I, I mean, I, I completely endorse um, the, the, the challenge that we face, and you know, I think the administration is grappling for the first time towards trying to figure out in how we respond to China in such a belated way. China is the challenge or the threat, whatever adjective you prefer, of the 21st century. Uh, but in the short run, it is Korea that really has the potential, of course, to turn into uh, a, a full-out war. And, and so that's why you have to put so much attention on it, even while you're trying to juggle these other, uh, these other big issues. And I think the biggest problem we face, quite honestly, uh, is the South Korean administration today. Um, they are actively undercutting UN sanctions. They're doing it in full knowledge of what they themselves pledged to and what they for years have expected us to, to live up to. And they're doing it in ways that the Chinese have been doing it for years. Coal shipments and oil shipments and cross-border financial flows. All of those things that we called out the Chinese for doing, our South Korean allies are now doing. Because Moon Jae-in has a different end game in sight. And your point, Norman, I think is exactly right. Are we being shunted off the peninsula, which would be um, which would be very messy because of the way that, that uh, we, we've been there for so long and our troops are there and our commitments are there. We are lagging the politics 
is lagging behind the facts on the ground, and that's never a good place to be. And it's also a real issue for Japan, our ally, who uh, would, would feel extremely concerned that what we might do is say, look, this isn't working anymore, we're just gonna, we're just gonna walk away and essentially leave Japan alone to face this. And then you start talking about the question of nuclear proliferation throughout Asia. So this is not something to, to, um, to ignore and think that you know, it's gonna work itself out. Uh, that's why I said watch very closely over the coming, the coming months because you may hit that tipping point where Washington decides it cannot work with the Moon administration anymore. Uh, and if we get to that point, I'm not saying we will get to that point, but if we get to that point, it will come very quickly. And we haven't worked out all the implications of what it means, nor how North Korea and Beijing would take advantage of it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Re Russell, um, you know, I share uh, very much your, your sense that the, um, you know, that the Atlantic relationship between the United States and Europe is extremely important and continues to be important to America's, um, you know, posture in the world. Um, you know, the China problem is clearly the China problem, and it's the big one. But, but, but uh, you know, to have partners and allies uh, is an important part of what we do. So I guess my question really has to do with, with, with Germany and Europe. And uh, we know that um, uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel is in a little bit of trouble. In fact, he's more than a little bit of trouble. Uh, the Bavarian elections make clear uh, that she may not last very long at all. Um, it's hard to predict, mm -hmm. clearly, but um, if she goes, then a kind of heart, I mean, some people have even painted her as the heart of Europe, you know, yeah. the heart of the European Union, and that Germany's intentions um, and commitment to Europe is really an important part of what Europe is. So how do you, how do you read, um, you know, the potential fallout uh, of a Merkel uh, departure and the kind of polarization of politics in Germany, which may no longer make Germany the heart of Europe at all. I mean, Europe may have to go somewhere else, and, and other places don't seem to want her, you know, except for maybe Brussels, because <laughs> they have the headquarters, right? So, so how, do you look, how do you look at the kind of German question in light of the European question in light of U.S.-European uh, relations? So I endorse all those framings. The relationship between the United States and Europe is crucial. Germany's role in Europe is crucial, if only simply quantitatively. It's the biggest country, population, GDP, et cetera. Uh, where Germany goes, so goes Europe. I think Lenin said something like that. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the problem is right now that the Merkel era is coming to an end. It's been coming to an end slowly for a while, and the recent elections seem to indicate that that end may be closer. One level of discussion would be, well, who'll be replaced? There'll, there'll be another chancellor. There doesn't seem to be an obvious um, um, star, really, in any party right now. But that's perhaps less interesting to this group than the question of, well, what's the governing coalition going to be? For a long time, there was, in effect, a, um, an implicit left majority in the, in the Bundestag, uh, but you didn't have a left government because of a... Um, uh, reluctance on the part of the major parties to enter into coalition with the left party, Die Linke, left is its name. It's the former Communist Party. Remember that Germany today includes the former East Germany. So there are a lot of people with communist or post-communist affiliations. But now that uh, taboo against coalition with Die Linke has, is, 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 is dissipated. 
so it's very, very possible, I'd say almost likely, that the next coalition will be one that includes Yulinka, and that would probably be the Social Democrats, the Greens, and, and Yulinka, something like that. Maybe the Liberals as well. Some, some mix. It's going to be hard. It will depend on the outcome of the elections, but the link is going to enter, and it could end up being that as the second strongest party, it has the foreign ministry. And that would mean that you'd have a party that has anti-Americanism in its, in its DNA governing, governing Germany. Now, to keep you up at night, imagine that this happens around the same time that there's an election in the UK, and you have a Corbyn government there. Europe is going to be hard to hold on to for, the, for a Western alliance. Uh, and this, is the, this, this really can't be blamed on any administration, American administration. This is an indigenous European development. For the history of the Cold War, Germany uh, varied between, West Germany varied between a center-right and a center-left government in a very narrow range, and you had a two-and-a-half-party system. Now we're moving into a six-party system um, uh, with a lot of a lot of instability, uh, almost Weimar-esque. Uh, so I'm um, I, I don't have any uh, any happy happy end to to conclude these remarks on. It seems to be the theme of the panel. I'm yeah. afraid to say. Yeah. Uh, okay, maybe we'll get a happy ending here, right? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Gary. Um, so your your um, your description is pretty pretty pessimistic. And um, we were just speaking, you know, before the panel that you were uh, uh, chair of the review of the national security strategy as well. And so it's quite clear, I think, to everybody in this room too, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, that China is our number one security challenge. So the, the real question, it's, it seems to me at this point then is, you know, and you were chief of operations, is operations. In other words, what do you do? Right. I mean, what kinds of policies? I mean, if you're advising the American president and you tell him, well, you know, these are the policies that we need to institute and need to institute right away because this, this challenge is coming fast and it's coming furious, right? So um, what policies would you recommend? I mean, you've heard them recommended clearly in Washington and mm -hmm. some have been accepted, some turned down. But how, how, do you, how would you advise us? Yeah, I mean, what I would like to see happen, as I said, I think the strategies that the administration issued are, you know, capture things properly. Um, what I believe we need to do and, and not wait until after the fact, as we often do, is for the administration to challenge Congress to come together with the national security committees and by that armed services, intelligence, uh, foreign relations, also add in uh, commerce. And if you want to call it a commission, similar to the 9-11 commission, um, and, it, and, it, and it should not be, in my mind, how do we beat China? It's, it, the commission should look at how do we posture ourselves as a nation to be able to deal with the future environment that we will face with regard to technology, with regard to education, with regard to investments, with regard to foreign uh, cooperation. And I believe that we have to have that level of strategic thought injected into it. And it can't just be the administration shouting louder 
I really do believe that a lot of the challenges that we face here deal with our legislative branch. In two years' time, we are going to be confronted with another set of budget caps. We cannot deal with the future, whether it's in uh, the technical space or the security space, without having to think our way through how do we better manage uh, our fiscal future. You know, John Cogan talked about it today. I would also say that we probably, as a stopgap measure, need to move some more forces and bias them more toward the Pacific as a, as a signal to China that, that we are in a better position to respond if you do anything uh, badly. Um, I hit education quite hard, but we really need to look at how do we incentivize young people. You know, for example, I would like us to see, I would like to see if you have a grandson or a granddaughter that wants to become a computer scientist, um, that when they finish their degree, all of their debt is absolved. If they want to major in theater, I have nothing against theater majors, you pay the price, okay? <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think that we really need to think about We're gonna be in big trouble in the history <laughs> department if that's the case. <laughs> um, so, you know, but I think we really, we need to come together and it just is not, a, not a, an armed services issue. This is a national issue. I think we have to look at it. We have to think about our infrastructure that's more vulnerable to cyber attack. We need to think about how we want to bring in the new technologies like 5G that will enable uh, different forms of communications, change the way of life, autonomous vehicles, things like that. And, it, and we can't just do it piecemeal. That's, uh, that may be Pollyannish, but I really believe we should do that now and not wait for a crisis to hit us. Can I put a quick sure, plug, by sure, the way, for uh, Secretary Schultz has actually started what, what Gary's talked about. He is, is running a... Uh, a study series, a program called Global Governance, in essence, to look at, at some of these issues uh, that are largely regionally uh, focused, uh, meeting on Russia, China coming up, Latin America, but, but even broader. And, and I, I think that recognition of what Gary said is, is exactly what's driving uh, what Secretary Schultz is doing and what, uh, what at Hoover many of us are trying to grapple with, which is don't be behind the curve, which we always are, is try to get ahead of that curve try to understand what that risk is early on so you can have a rational conversation as opposed to the panicked conversation that you usually have in Washington, D.C. And so if you haven't followed what um, the Secretary is doing, I would, I would very much uh, encourage you to look at on the website and, and what's coming out in the papers that he's commissioned for that to get at some of these issues. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.